welcome to Fandom Media. Episode 6 of The Expanse, Season 2. Here we are for Paradigm Shift. That's the title, and the paradigms are indeed shifting, as it says. So does our love for this show itself, shifting even more past the overwhelmingly positive, absolutely. But what's growing faster, our Expanse fandom or Alex's hair? Alex's hair, I think. (laughs) That and other burning questions in this episode of Fandom Media. Yeah, this episode we decided to not have any spoilery discussion at all. It just sometimes works out that way that the episode doesn't require it and it opens it up to more listeners when we don't have spoilers, but I'm sure we'll have another episode or two this season with lots and lots of spoilers. Yeah, we'll generally keep it compartmentalized like we did in the previous episode, having it all in the back, but this time we decided there just wasn't any need to have any. So, onward we go. Meta Elements As he said, this episode was named Paradigm Shift, and that was certainly true, certainly evidenced in many places. For instance, of course, the obvious Epstein drive that we saw, protomolecule and that parallel between that and the Epstein drive. And of course, Miller's gone now. Yeah, there's a lot of changes, and also Fred is more powerful, and that means the OPA is more powerful. And that creates a paradigm shift in the political landscape. Instead of just Mars versus Earth, there's now another player. And obviously, as events in the episode show, there is another player. (laughs) (laughs) So that in itself is a multifaceted paradigm shift. And that was true in the case of the Epstein Drive, of course, as well, as that changed things hugely on a political scale in terms of they bartered that information for Martian independence, and it changed things in terms of expanding humanity's capabilities. And as we see here, that's true of the protomolecule. That's right. Outside of this main Expanse novels, there is a short story called Drive, which is what this Epstein story is based on. And it's used really well here merged with the main plot line as a parallel to what we're discussing here, the technological leap forward caused by his invention versus the leap forward caused by the protomolecule. Really well blended here. I was really uh, really pleased with that. If you haven't read it, you can go to the Sci-Fi website and they have it there to read. Just Google Drive the Expanse and... Check it out. And you recognize the actor playing Solomon Epstein, didn't you? I did, actually. This is Sam Huntington. Apparently, he's now on the show Being Human, but I know him from teen movies of yore, which is not another <laughs> teen movie, and the movie Fanboys, which is about some young adults headed to George Lucas's ranch to see The Phantom Menace. <laughs> nice. One thing that I really loved in this drive scene, which was really awesome, was such a great surprise. I wasn't expecting it, but it makes a lot of sense that they might show this, was how they visually represented the title of the story, Drive, on his console, on his dashboard. Yeah, that was really cool, having the whole, much of the story shown there while the narration is going on, filling in some of the more human details. We also had a couple different mentions of Epstein sprinkled throughout the episode, as in One was in the opener, in the opening Earth Council scene, they mentioned the Epstein Drive. And then later in the episode, you see this visually, as you see when Naomi is helping Drummer, you see Epstein Industries. That's right. Narrative. Ultimately, though, the Drive story is fairly tragic, and there's a lot of tragedy in this episode in general. However... There's also a lot of really funny moments, and that kind of helps balance things out a bit. I think the funniest to me was the scene with 
Holden and Naomi revealing their relationship, revealing it to (laughs) Amos and Alex there. (laughs) Hearing Amos say those lines that she's like a sister to me. I mean, I do her. She let me. It was perfect. (laughs) And of course, the many, many parents that Holden has there, the father and mother and mother and father. (laughs) And of course, the avatar that she had, the profile picture was, of course, of his mother, Elise, that we met in season one. Right on. This episode really was focused a lot on Alex and Amos' relationship, I thought. We had multiple scenes with them. Some, they were maybe broing out a little bit over their bet, or in some, they were having a bit of a conflict, and they were all really great scenes. Yeah, I thought there were a few really poignant lines that came out of it that stood out. For example, Amos saying there's three kinds of people, bad ones, ones you follow, and ones you need to protect. And Alex has one of his great lines saying that he can fight his own battles. The humor and the conflict come together with the fixing of the Martian flag. (laughs) Which was, it was a really great scene. One, we got to see a little bit of a closer look at the Martian flag. Two, it dealt with what do you do when the things a flag is showing the imagery of changes. Well, you change your flags. So it is accurate. Imagine, for example, if we just lost Florida. Would we have a 49-star flag then? We would, and it would bother (laughs) a lot of people. (laughs) I liked this scene with Alex and Amos a lot when they were in the bar that we've seen a few times at Tycho Station. One thing that I liked about it, and Aziz mentioned at the beginning, is Alex's hair. I like to think that he picked it out with a comb before he went out for a night with the ladies or something, with the prostitutes, as it turned out. (laughs) Another thing that happened in this episode was Alex suggests they give the protomolecule to Mars, which just made me laugh out loud. Yeah, me too. (laughs) How blatantly transparent that was a suggestion <laughs> yeah there was a that was a good scene in general it was all all of them together which is nice you don't we don't get a lot of that uh them getting to discuss something or something like that usually they're in action or they're split apart obviously naomi's interaction with this whole thing is the most interesting she was the one person who disagreed with everything ultimately the one person whose will was enforced despite <laughs> what was agreed upon by everybody else and that's obviously going to come up later but in the meantime, she makes an interesting point that I think is clearly correct. It's proven correct. She says, do you really think we're the only ones that have a sample? And yeah, and we see at the end of the episode, there's some sort of proto-substance soldier out there. So clearly someone else has some sort of sample. Right. So she's clearly right. Of course she's right. But they are convinced that she's not. Not only that, but Venus is out there and they have to think that there might be some remnants there. Yeah, there's no guarantee that it was just destroyed entirely. Last week, we talked about the idea that Naomi might have something to do with the protomolecule not just being destroyed. And seems like that theory's panned out. We still don't know exactly what she's going to do with it, but given her sympathetic relationship with Drummer and Fred now, it seems all too likely that she might give it to them. Yeah, she does numerous things this episode to prove where her ultimate loyalties lie, which is to the belt. She helps with the missiles. She works, keeps the protomolecule. And, of course, she talks to Fred about making Miller into a hero, making him bringing out the love story of it all, as it were. And in fact, her conversations with Fred are really important in general. But yet, but as of yet, she hasn't done anything with the protomolecule. She's certainly kept it. She's, it, all things are pointing towards her maybe giving it to the the belt, to giving it to Fred Johnson specifically. But she didn't do it yet. No, she's 
all she's done is lied to the crew about destroying it. So we don't know what she plans to do with it. Yeah, she could change her mind. She could give it to somebody else. She could just leave it there and, and wait for things to change and then give it to someone. One thing I wonder about in terms of Fred's conversation that he has with Naomi there is whether he fully agrees with her. I think he has to agree with her. I don't think he would just do it if he thought it was a bad play. But I also think that he's probably thinking on some level that this is a good in with Holden and the Rocinante crew. They're hiding something. Naomi is their in. She is the belter in there. So it makes sense to treat her well. Yeah, and she may be thinking more of them in the long run, her crew, that is, by making allies and building these bridges, which is something we've already seen her do. She was the one that repaired the damage with Miller and bridged that relationship in the first place, really. So if that's kind of one of her roles among the crew, then it'd be interesting to see her do this on on a higher scale, making powerful allies for them, etc., things along that line. We spoke earlier about Fred himself is in, has experienced a paradigm shift, but it's not all good for him. He does have this lawsuit now to face uh, from the Mormons, and I guess that's a developing situation. We'll see how that goes, but something we can't forget about. Something the Mormons clearly won't forget about. Fred has a couple really great lines here, too. One was, you know, him saying that he's basically, I'm in some deep shit. Which was just really hilarious, especially said in his gravelly voice. But the better line was his response to Holden's I have a dream about no team speech, which was, that's a nice dream, son. <laughs> it's a nice dream, son. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. He just really just shakes his head and says, come on, man, you cannot be this naive. Fandomedia.reviews. <laughs> this, this scene is emblematic of both Holden and Fred's characters. Holden would tell everyone everything at this point, like he did in the very beginning of the whole series by just broadcasting what they thought had happened regarding Mars and Mars being the instigator and all that. Fred, on the other hand, realizes that information can cause damage, even if it may be, quote-unquote, the right thing to do. Let's be honest, Fred has a pretty good track record of doing the right thing in general, mm -hmm. but that, to not belabor the point... In this case, he points out that if people found out about the protomolecule, it would cause panic. And that in itself causes destruction. So there's this whole morality of the spread of information and when it's okay to tell people and when. And who gets to make those decisions? Diogo speaking loudly and <laughs> clearly about what Josephus Miller wants is the future. Yes, he is the opposite of this concept of speaking perhaps with care and choice. Diogo is a bit more on the stand in front of a mural and be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a really great scene. I, I loved it so much. From the opening lines of the heroes of Eros, and you see them all pulled through, and then you see Diogo there, like, proselytizing. <laughs> Diogo also, of course, fulfills Miller's last wishes in that he... <laughs> Gets laid. Yep. Miller told him to go get laid, and as he's being pulled away by that bartender from the previous episodes, he says, Miller, I do this for you. Yeah, you can tell it's a man of good character, fulfilling the wish of, a, of the dead. <laughs> Such a hard wish to fulfill, too. <laughs> also, we 
had the opportunity to submit a question to the Churn podcast, uh, which has the writers and creators and cast members on every week. It's the official Expanse podcast, and they had Andrew Rutilio on, and he plays Diogo, and they were asking for questions, and I submitted the question asking what his favorite line that he's gotten to deliver is. And he said, not the one I was expecting. I thought he might say that he crushes ass to dust. <laughs> but no, it was that spacewalk pretty fun, yeah? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which, anyways, uh, he has a lot of great lines. It must be hard to pick. Or speaking of great lines, Avarisala not only mentions raining down hellfire, she definitely delivers it herself to Aaron Wright with her speech about the Mao family. I think I see some people maybe criticizing uh, Shara's acting in that scene, but I think that what they're missing is that Christian knows she's putting on a show for Aaron Wright and for Mao. She has to put on this big show of a speech. I don't think she really feels like this necessarily. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's uh, They both know more than either of them has said out loud, and they both know that the other knows things, and so their moves are calculated. So this is not her... This is not a speaking from the heart speech. Exactly. This is, this is something she planned on doing. She planned on being loud, she planned on being angry, and she planned on doing it in a very specific way. Yeah, and just as she's planned on walking into his... To Aaron Wright's room there mm. with the, hey, what are you up to? With the flirty <laughs> voice and the kind of swaying body. It was really good acting in that respect, I think. Yeah, had a drink, caught him off guard a bit there for sure. In that scene, she offers Jewel Pierre Mao a deal. And we get a mention of his children. He has other children besides Julie Mao. He's got two sons and a daughter that he adores. In the books, actually, he has two other daughters. They just condense that a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah, probably doesn't matter at all. But there's also this new character called Dr. Iturbi, and that's who Everasala has dinner with, and he's apparently going to go to Venus and check things out, which is exciting. He has a great line of his own. I never doubted that for a moment. Yes, I never doubted that. That's awesome. <sighs> Some other... Uh, uh, the line, step one, find God, was great when talking about their plan for extraterrestrial life versus their extensive plans for how to deal with Mars. Really well done. She also had another great line that I wanted to highlight, which was some other bunch of science words that you string together. <laughs> <laughs> A major plot line for this episode is the introduction of Ganymede, mentioned before but seen in full in this episode. It's a moon of Jupiter, the largest moon in the system, period. It might have more water than Earth, even, in real life, and it has a magnetic field, which is the only moon in the system known to have one. So that makes it great fodder for science fiction plot lines. <laughs> it's also said to have a lot of interesting tectonic activity, which might mean there's some kyber crystals there. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Star Wars fandom. I got that crossed over there. <laughs> uh, well, James S.A. Corey did write Star Wars books. Okay, then. Maybe I'm not so crazy after all. But here's the thing. If there were kyber crystals there, the Marines definitely wouldn't be so blasé about what they were guarding. <laughs> Instead, they make fun of guarding soybeans and other food. In general, it's a bit ironic that they're making fun of guarding what's such an important place. To them... I think Earth messing with the food supply would be unthinkable, just like them messing with the food supply would be unthinkable. Earth, however, has even more people to feed, so they know that neither government really has any interest in picking this fight. So they're kind of bored. But first of all, 
their own government obviously sees it differently, or they wouldn't be there. As they're sternly reminded. Yeah. But more relevantly, the problem is that they see Earth's government as the only possible enemy. And as we see quickly, and then they see quickly, that's clearly wrong. We're not sure if Mars's government also made this error in not realizing that there are other enemies to, out there. But they clearly were caught off guard at Ganymede and ripped to shreds. Even at the last, Lieutenant Sutton, R.I.P., says, I can't believe we're doing this. Which says to me that he still kind of perceives it as Earth versus Mars. He's kind of saying, I can't believe we're destroying the food supply like this. Yeah, I got that impression too. So looking back on Hillman's line, her last, she kind of mentions the proto-molecule, not by name, of course, but she talks about the crazy technology and she's got her bit of a theory there and she's ordered to stop speculating. Hmm. <laughs> but she wasn't far off, <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> She was the only one thinking outside of the box, and Dr. Turby himself points this out, that he's thinking outside the box. He thinks he's kind of got some strong ideas, which we, of course, feel like he's probably right. Mm -hmm. And he points this out, he points out to Avrasala that the colonel in charge of, you know, translating science to politicians, okay. this guy is also not thinking outside of the box. And that's the problem, and that's why he's important, and that's why he needs to be the one to go to Venus. <laughs> visual elements. One visual element that we mentioned already is that mural of Miller there, which was not exactly the most spot-on likeness, but spot-on to how the Belters would probably depict him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was awesome. Another scene that was done just entirely visually was Naomi's deception with the protomolecule that she, you know, keys in a simulation, and we see that, and then it plays out, and we never see anything else come of it except for her acting yeah and holden sees it and he thinks it's done and walks away and you that's clear from his reaction and then like you said naomi's facial acting changes the, the situation even more she's lied to holden and the rest of the crew so that's something that she's got to you know internalize a bit and think about Another fully visual scene is the Paolo Cortazar scene where we see him using uh, his awesome technology to... Google glasses yeah, on his, steroids. Yeah, that's a great description of them. To sift through different information and look at different things. He doesn't talk. He's just looking at different information and equations and data, and it's just really cool. Yeah, I was glad to check in with Cortazar, honestly. Yeah. We also saw this huge missile net, mm -hmm. and along with the visual of the remaining missiles, the, the ones aborted and the ones that kept on going, and those are the ones that were caught and are now being converted for the OPA. I think my favorite shot in the episode was that transition down from the drive flashback over to Ganymede, which was just beautiful, and Ganymede itself was really pretty with the, that surface and the backdrop of Jupiter and everything like that. It was really incredible looking. I love the view inside their battle suits as well, the readouts and displays and all the little cool little details they put in there. They take a lot of time to make specific decisions with that. I think it's also clever because it allows them to do fewer expensive big CGI shots because it's a little more basic looking there. I mean, they still have to do some visual stuff, but it must be cheaper. It makes sense for it to have a certain military efficiency, which allows it to be more simplified, but it still looks very futuristic. Yeah. Probably one of the most spectacular things ever in this show was the destruction of the orbital mirrors. I mean, just seeing the orbital mirrors, period, was beautiful. But when you see them shatter, it was, I mean, I had a hard time picturing it prior to this, and it, they did it beautifully. It really hits you hard what's happening there. There's a lot of debris, and there's 
so much effort and wonder in those devices. They're unique and the human impact is not to be understated. I think they may have made a small impact here, maybe not explaining to the audience a little better just how vital that food supply is, because I think that makes the scene hit a little harder. Personally, I was just, I thought it was breathtaking. I was on the edge of my seat. I was shifting uncomfortably with it because it was just so powerful. And I don't know that everyone else got that. And I think it's too bad. I would definitely agree. I think that it was a slight misfire. (laughs) But I do think that most show viewers probably didn't understand the importance of this location. They might find out after the fact. We might see the fallout next episode and they might hear some characters talking about why this place was so important. But that doesn't really help after the fact. And I think we had time to do that. Yeah, it's certainly going to become clear, I think, soon. I think you get the general idea, but it's probably going to be a lot more severe than has been shown so far. Something else that turned out to be foreshadowing was that small drone that they looked up at and said, oh, it's unarmed, Ah, nothing. That thing apparently was connected to the creature proto-soldier thing, which apparently dropped off the soldier creature or whatever. At least that was my interpretation of how it went. And then not long after this, we get the very sad image montage of all the destroyed Martian suits. You don't really see the people inside. Clearly you see them, but it's mostly the destroyed armor that that's really focused on you know i'll tell you i thought that they would be building up those martian marines a little bit more we more saw just infighting which doesn't really make you very sympathetic to them i was i thought they were funny in a lot of cases and so i i maybe missed their presence but it wasn't really super sad to me for them to be gone which i thought at this point that we would have that emotional weight Hmm. In any case, Bobby, of course, is alive, and she, something happens there. There's like a flash of light, and the episode ends right after she sees the blue eyes looking at her with the drone in the background. More than blue eyes. What's that? (laughs) More than blue eyes. The whole (laughs) whole black, goopy body. Yeah, the blue everything, blue, black everything, the proto colors. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that they did here was make things very unclear with how things are going down in this Ganymede incident. And it's a little clearer in the books, but I think that they made a very calculated choice, which was confirmed by the Churn podcast that they talked about. They wanted to have this uncertainty here, and they wanted it to be mysterious. And so if you're turned off by this element of not seeing what happened, they will go back to this. Oh, that's interesting to know. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot left to explain still. (laughs) I'm sure there'll be new things that will also need to be explained on top of all that. Audio Elements. One device that they used to explain things in a scene that would be really hard to explain was that drive flashback. They had Solomon Epstein narrating it, which it's kind of weird to think that he could be narrating it or talking or doing anything like that, but it's a storytelling device so that we can actually know what's going on here. I actually saw a really cool idea that's too late now that it would have been really great if we had seen that as like, that's a dramatization of what happened. And they're showing that in like school, in class or something like that. Uh, In a particular scene in Ganymede in the school. That would have been cool. And I thought that was a genius idea. I still don't think it drew me out to know that like, yeah, they just had him narrate here, even though it is a little different from the norm. We also had, of course, Julie narrates back in season one. So they've done this before. Hmm. Now, to me, the most outstanding, not in necessarily a great way, (laughs) the 
audio element was the jamming device that reduced the Marines to their close helmet communication, and it was sudden and disorienting for both the audience and the Marines, which kind of was a cool effect to kind of give us all a bit of an idea what it was like for them. And it's extra disorienting because it's not really something that they've trained for. It's not normal to just have all communications jammed from just to the people right next to you to the people up above Ganymede. No one can can communicate. Yeah, yeah, that technology wasn't apparently something that they were prepared for, which meant it didn't exist prior to this. Something else I've noticed that I think is really cool is the railgun sound they have. It's kind of becoming an iconic sound. It's like (laughs) a unique sound to me. Um, Maybe not quite on the level of like the... To go back to Star Wars, the <laughs> the sound of a lightsaber or a TIE fighter. But, you know, over the years, if we get that mu- this much of the expanse, it might get to that level. Final thoughts. So let's get into our favorite moments. What was yours, Aziz? Well, I had two favorite moments in particular. I had one favorite funny moment and one favorite serious moment. And my favorite serious moment was the destruction of Ganymede itself, the whole scene of the with, with the, both the visual and impact in terms of story. And seeing what happened in the deaths as well, that I think was just really strong. To me, that was my favorite. As far as my favorite humorous moment, it was certainly the questions, may we shoot the soybeans, sir? (laughs) So both Ganymede scenes, though. Absolutely. (laughs) I'd say my favorite scene was the Diogo scene with him, you know, giving his speech about Miller. But I also really liked the whole... Alex and Amos plotline as a whole. It's hard for me to really separate their scenes. Maybe I would choose the fixing of the Martian flag, but I guess I tend to like the humorous moments as well. Fandomedia.reviews. Fandomedia could use your help getting the word out about our show. If you would leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, we would really appreciate it. It surprisingly helps us quite a bit. Signing off, we're the Expanse. And we will rebuild Fandomedia.